census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. I'm your host, Patrick Rahal, but you can call me Patsy the Angry Nerd. We are here in the slowly being renovated Pat Cave of Magenta Manor, brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee and the Dorkening Podcast Network. And uh, I am, of course, not here by myself. I am here with my co-host on the show and my co-host in life. She is the Baroness of Bordeaux, the Countess of Cabernet, the Mistress of Merlot, the Queen Regent of Rosé. She is the real housewife of Transylvania. She is the Michael Phelps of wine. She is the queen of the monsters and an honorary Lizzie. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Ashes Wild Nightmare. Blast off. Yes, you'll notice I didn't say episode 321. I said episode 321. That's because today we'll be following up our Barb uh, our Barb episode with the Enheimer side of it. So... Uh, this week we'll be talking about Julius Robert Oppenheimer, uh, although in the movie they tell you that the J doesn't stand for anything. Uh, he is the uh, the Dr. J who can't dunk, uh, in case you were wondering. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, today we're going to be discussing uh, how the depiction of Oppenheimer in Nolan's film differs from his depiction in the documentary that we watched uh Shortly after? Yeah, we watched it a couple days after. Mm-hmm. Um, although there was a lot of overlap, there was some slight variation. Um, one thing in particular stuck out to me, but we'll talk about that after. But uh, we have to start the show on some very sad news that we just we just heard. Um, for those of you who are uh, not familiar um, with the viral kitten sensation tater tot uh tater tot unfortunately just passed away we found that out right before we started recording so godspeed tater tot tot speed <laughs> tot speed may his uh may his badonka bonkers live forever on yes uh, at least he will live forever in uh in memes and in the memories of the tens of thousands of people who joined facebook groups just well, to I mean, share this cat was crazy because this cat took over so many different cat-centric Facebook groups, uh, TikTok, um, I, I don't know, whatever else is happening on the social medias. Uh, Instagram, I know that's a thing. People um, were exceeding about it. <laughs> but uh, this cat just became this overnight sensation. Uh, everybody loves him because he's so grumpy and so little and so innocent and so freaking cute. And 
you know, we we love our we love our little orange guys here. So uh, obviously, we were fans of Tater Tot. Yes. And unfortunately, yeah, we we were fans of little orange cats and potatoes. So this was like. Right? This is like a nice mixture of the two. Um, yeah, so I found out about this cat via this Facebook group called This Cat is Grumpy. That's where I found him, too. And uh, shortly thereafter, because he became so popular, they decided to make him his own Facebook group, which just, you know, completely took off, called Tater Tot and His Spud Buds. Yeah. And what they are doing is they are urging people to go out and if you too are really moved by this little kitten, go out and uh, make donations to your local shelter in his honor, because that's what he would have wanted. Save more cats. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that kind of fits with the overall theme and vibe of this uh, this this episode. So... Ashes, you have the uh, getting into character question well, for I, us. This so week. I, I do, but we have to discuss something first before we get into that yes. because you know two weeks ago we barbenheimered. Right. Yes, we did. Did we not discuss that on the Barbie show, or did we record that before we saw Barbie? It's we recorded so it before we saw Barbie because we uh, were getting people right. prepared to go that's see right. the Barbie episode. And to my credit, I did a fucking great job with that because if you listened to that episode and you went to see the Barbie movie, you were prepared. You were very prepared. Yeah, you did a really good job knowing. Uh, Dropping knowledge bombs all over the place. Ha ha. That fits in with the theme of the episode today, too. But, uh, yeah, so we recorded that episode, and then we Barbenheimered that Friday. So we threw it down on Thursday, then we Barbenheimered that Friday. We saw Barbie first, which, again, we had to see it for... And it just so happened that that schedule fit the best at the theater that we were going to. It's like, oh, the Barbie movie's at this time, and then we have, like, two minutes to pee and then go run over to Oppenheimer. That's perfect. Let's do that. Yeah, we missed some of the trailers, but we did see the important one. So we strolled into the Barbie theater around, what, 7 o'clock? 7 p.m.? Uh, Eastern Standard Time? Yeah, about about, uh, about 7. And we did not leave the theater till after 1 a.m. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were there for six hours. It was, I, uh, but it was we, a good time. We definitely slept in the next morning. No, it was a fantastic time. I'm. It, it was So I was wearing my, my Barbenheimer shirt that I purchased specifically for the event. Uh, it I was had my great. pink shoes, my pink uh, rosé drag queen shirt. Uh, I was wearing my pink underwear um my pink hat so yeah i was i was uh i was ready to go it was such a fantastic time you know going in seeing barbie first which you know if you listen to the episode you know that we had to see barbie first because that was just uh, the only thing getting me through life right now was, you know, the anticipation of seeing the Barbie movie. Um, and honestly, I thought that how we did it was perfect. Barbie first, Oppenheimer second. You know, I, I know that some people say, you know, go see the bummer movie first and then end on the high note. To be completely honest, go see Barbie first because you don't want to be bummed out seeing Barbie. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, I also had the pink watch band. I forgot I swapped out my watch band. Yeah, so so you were you were completely and totally accessorized. Yeah, I was I um, was barbed out. 
but it was uh it was it was good it was so good uh, you know barbie was excellent it uh just completely exceeded my expectations and my expectations were high um it was more than i had anticipated and i loved it i loved it so much i cannot wait to see it again which will be happening at some point i want to see it at least two more times in the theater um and and definitely go see it in the theater if you have any interest in seeing that film at all see it in the theater it is such a gorgeous film and what i loved was sitting in the theater so we were kind of up in one of the last rows and just looking down and seeing this sea of pink so many people were dressed up dressed in pink dressed as their favorite barbie uh, dressed up period like it was fantastic i loved seeing everybody coming out you know honestly it had a marvel movie like avenger type of vibes to it you know or a just... star wars release yeah yeah just with with everyone being so excited and everyone you know putting in the effort to dress up and you know really express themselves and express their excitement in that way too it was just it was absolutely wonderful uh and so from there we went to see oppenheimer we had about two minutes to pee really quick and then run to the next theater thank god they now do the uh the theater that we go to, and I insist upon going to this theater because I am bougie like that, but uh, you know the theaters that have the recliners and you can order the food and you can uh, they have the app where you can order the food ahead of time. So like when you go apps. into your movie, like they bring your food. It, yeah. Uh, so luckily I had pre-ordered our food, so we didn't even have to worry about that. We could just run to the theater and plop down in our seats. It was to the point where we couldn't wait to see if Barbie had a post-credit scene, which apparently it does not, uh, because we just didn't have time. We had to get to the other theater um, in order the, to... The, the credits of Barbie, um, so no post-credit scene, but very satisfying credits... And I would have loved to have been able to stay and seen more of the of the credits because they were showing some of the dolls, kind of giving you like a little bit of a history of the dolls that were um, released throughout the years. So I would have liked to have seen, you know, stayed and watched that, which I will definitely do next time I see it. But yeah, we had to we had to bounce out of there super quick because we couldn't miss Oppenheimer. And oh my goodness, you know. What a time to be alive, to have two just crazy polar opposite blockbusters in the theater and have the opportunity to sit there and watch them both simultaneously, like in one evening. Well, and, and people are already trying to pair up some that are coming down the pipeline, like uh, Wonk Polian and Saw Patrol. So but here's the thing about that. I don't think that... Anything else will be able to capture the magic of Barbenheimer. No, every every masterpiece has its cheap copy, as, as we've we've learned. So you know, Wonkpolian is definitely. Uh, we saw the trailer for Wonka, and I was like, "Wow, Timothy Chalamet really couldn't be bothered to have any charisma in this trailer, huh? Awesome. Um, he will rank." Um, uh, fourth in the portrayals of Willy Wonka that I have experienced. Uh, obviously, number one would be 
uh, Gene Wilder. Number two would be myself in 1991 in fourth grade as I played Willy Wonka for our school play. Uh, third would be Johnny Depp. And then obviously uh, a distant, distant fourth would be Timothy Chalamet. So I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, you know, I, I think most people would agree. I, as a 10-year-old, uh, had the second best Willy Wonka performance. So I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, but uh, I digress. Are there are there any? I know I know you have a picture, but are there any videos? Is there video evidence of this well, we perfect were, portrayal? We were poor and didn't have a uh, didn't have a uh, uh, what you call it uh, video recording camcorder. Uh, but the picture that I do have was actually from the Worcester Telegram and Gazette the following day. I was on the second page of the paper. Well, you didn't make the front page? I didn't make the front page. I don't know what was going on that day, but uh, probably something to do with the Gulf War would be my guess, because uh, that was that year. Um, but uh, I was second page. Like, that was it. It was the Gulf A War. A performance not dynamic enough to oust the Gulf War from the first page of the, was it Telegram and Gazette? Telegra Worcester Telegram and Gazette. <laughs> So, yeah, um, but I digress. You were you were saying, yeah, but that kind of leads us into our getting into character question for today, which is, in the spirit of Barbenheimer, which two films would you pair together? Now we're looking for completely polar opposite vibes films, and they don't necessarily have had to have come out and the same year or whatever. It's just, if you were doing a Barbenheimer-esque double feature, which two films would you pair together? And would you give it a fun name? Oh, well, yeah, we were talking about this a little bit, uh, and I came up with one. Uh, the Fern Gully Inferno. No, what I say? The, the Green Gully, something like that. But it's Fern Gully and Green Inferno. Uh, because they they're also tied together uh, thematically because both are commentary on the rainforest. It's about saving uh, the rainforest and you know the the inhabitants thereof and the importance of just kind of staying out. Let the ecosystem thrive on its own. It doesn't need your help doesn't want your help and if you insist upon quote unquote helping there are dire consequences to be uh, to be undertaken so yeah um, that's uh, that's my my first one Oh, you have multiple. Oh, I'm. I'm. I'll come when you come up with one. I'm gonna come up with another one. So okay. So my first one. I don't know if I want to call it American History High School Reunion or Romy and Michelle's History X. Um, but yeah, American History X and Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Absolutely nothing to do with one another. Both fantastic films. Two completely different vibes. I dig both of them. One, a little more than the other, but uh, yeah, that's what I would pair. That sounds like a good night to me. Okay, so 
we'd also have to have to pair up a couple of different like really um I don't know um the wizard and hellraiser that would be interesting cuz both uh about or maybe La oh labyrinth and hellraiser labyrinth and hellraiser put those two together what what are you thinking I don't know what she's laughing at, but she's going to tell us, uh, I suppose, gonna, in a moment. We're going to watch. <laughs> Free Willy and Gladiator. Free Gladiator's Willy. How about... Wait, 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 wait. Cocaine Care Bears. Cocaine Care Bears. That's a good one. That's a, that's a good matchup. Um, don't you Care Bears stare at me. Um... Let's see. Uh, Scarface and Patch Adams. Uh, Patch Face. <laughs> Patch Face, uh, for those of you who read the Game of Thrones books, we know that Patch Face is uh, one of the characters who entertains Shireen Baratheon with uh, odd little songs that are strangely prophetic about uh, life under the sea. Uh, we could do... Uh, Let me think. What would be like a fun one that's like, oh, this is super kid friendly, like, but also like with something that's just absolutely traumatic. Um, um, what's something with bunnies to pair with Watership Down? Something with bunnies. Something cute to pair with. Oh, uh, Secret Life of Pets. There you go. Uh, or Zootopia. Zootopia. Yeah, there's a bunny in that, too. Um, we can do... Ready? Beethoven and Cujo. Cujtoven. <laughs> Bejo. Uh, that would be a good one uh, to really traumatize the, the youngins. Um, uh, let's see. Guess who's coming to dinner with Cannibal Holocaust? Uh, both about food and eating, and uh, or what's eating Gilbert Grape and uh, Silence of the Lambs. Um, let me think. I'm sure there's plenty more. Uh, oh, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with Chud. That would be a a good one. That yeah um, yeah. Both very similar concepts. Only one of them has John Goodman, though. Um, yeah, that would be a good combination. Um, let's see, we did Scarface and Patch Adams. Um, I don't. Do you have any other ones? Uh, I uh, I only came up with the two. I didn't realize you were just gonna go off. Oh, I'm and... sorry. Like this is like this is like right in my wheelhouse. Like you know. I'm just I'm just along for the ride right now. Um, let's see, what's it? Twister and the Wizard of Oz show both sides of uh, what happens in a tornado. Like that's a good one. Um, oof. Um, yeah, I think that's all I've got for right now. So, 
What do you think? Good time to take a break? I think it's a fabulous time to take a break. And when we come back, we are talking about Oppie. The Dr. J who can't dunk. Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, <coughs> it's scary. against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. They have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Build a town, build it fast. If we don't let scientists bring their families, we'll never get the best. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world? You're the great improviser, but this... you can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. This is a matter of life and death. I can perform this miracle. World War II would be over. Our boys would come home. That's happening, isn't it? The world will remember this day. Our work here will ensure a peace mankind has never seen. Until somebody builds a bigger one. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. to know what's next. Two. What's next? One.
And we are back. That, of course, was the uh, three-minute-long trailer for uh, Oppenheimer. Oh, a minute for every hour of the film. Yeah, I mean, if it, you know, two-hour trailer, you get a two-hour, uh, two-minute, a two-hour trailer for a two-hour movie. That's great. Yeah, a uh, two-minute trailer for a two-hour movie. Oh, you have don't to give add it the all extra. away. Yeah, like, oh, there's very little left. All that's left is the credits. Um, yeah, it's it's an intense trailer. It's really good. Uh this whole cast was good, but uh, yeah. So we're we're talking about um, J. Robert Oppenheimer. J stands for Julius. Um, although, again, in the film, they ask him what the J stands for, and he says nothing. Which I don't, I don't know why. I don't know what the the deal is on that. Maybe they didn't well, know. Well, no, they did know, and that was because. So uh, we'll get into this, but. He kind of ditched the Julius. J. Robert Oppenheimer is his persona. Mm. The persona that he adopted when he was studying over in Europe. His friends called him Jurop. And that's when he started wearing the pork pie hat that he became famous for. And, yes. you know, uh, at that point he was a chain smoker and extremely depressed or had these bouts of of depression um you know didn't eat much which is why you see killian murphy in the film looking so gaunt uh, more than because, usual yeah um you know he lost a considerable of he, he won't say how much he he lost because he doesn't want that to be like a point um but he did lo- lose a considerable amount of weight in order to to play this character. And the resemblance is rather uncanny at times. Yeah, one of uh, the biggest things was the striking blue eyes. Oppenheimer mm, had these really piercing blue eyes. Um, but, but yeah, so that was kind of him not necessarily like reinventing himself, but he was uh, when he was younger, he was very timid. And uh, there, there's not a lot of confidence to this person. So him coming up with almost like this alter ego gave him a little bit more confidence than he, he originally had. So that, that's where that comes it's from. It's almost like a form of dissociative identity where he's hiding uh, who he is by projecting it, a That is persona. his drag persona. Okay, that works too. Um I will say, uh, going into the movie, uh, there were, to use a mathematical term, infinitely more sex scenes than I would have expected, uh, because I expected zero, and there are some. Now, it's not full frontal. You don't see us fat man and little boys, but, you know, oh sorry, I had, I was- Is that going to be the title of the episode, Oppenheimer's Fat Man and Little Boys? No, no, no. I have, I have, uh, I have- a different idea for that like there was i was trying to figure out a way to work that in uh but yeah but, you um, don't, but he apparently he was a a serial womanizer yes and again that came from that persona yeah that he created you know it's almost like this uh false sense of security kind of like in taxi when andy kaufman became vic ferrari uh, that's a deep, deep cut that I know you don't get that reference, but that's okay. It's not important. But uh, for people who do get the reference, they'll know what I'm talking about. Now, 
the biggest difference I found between his portrayal in the movie by Killian Murphy, who did a very good job, uh, and some of the archival footage that we saw through, you know, interviews and depositions and whatnot is his voice had a very Mr. Rogers-like quality to it. He sounded very much like Mr. Rogers. He's like, won't you nuke my neighbor? Well, we have to get this bomb before the Germans do. Like, it's really weird. Like, I was really thrown off by that. And I wasn't necessarily sure if it was the quality of the video. Like, so I don't know if he really sounded like that or if it was just the... His voice was consistent over about 20 years of interviews from like the early 40s into the 60s when he was sitting right, down with Right, but what Cronkite. I'm saying is that the quality of these videos are kind of right, but it, it, you know, lacking. The quality of word. the videos changed, but his voice did not. Like, you know, from, you know, handheld archival footage of him in the 40s to him sitting down for a TV interview with Walter Cronkite, which is much better than you know, it was 20 years prior, he still sounded the same. I'm sure that also led to his prodigious consumption of cigarettes. Like, what did you say his diet was? Cigarettes and martinis? Yep. Like... Like every good scientist. Like Just a, kidding. His Maybe. whole thing, like, he was not... Like, his personality was not that... Of a leader? Well, was it, he wasn't a dynamic personality. No. He was very lacking in charisma. Charm. Um, well, but that's the thing, though. He was rather charming at times. Uh, he didn't necessarily know who he was as a person, but he knew who he was in the field of science. So before we go any further, I want to break down... What is theoretical physics? Because that's what Oppenheimer was. He was a theoretical physicist. So in layman's terms, theoretical physics is a branch of physics that employs mathematical models and abstractions of physical objects objects, and systems to rationalize, explain, and predict natural, natural phenomena. So what that means is it's the use of math and formulas and these equations to and and they show that uh, they actually do a really good job mm. of showing that in the film you know these lengthy equations that take up not only one side of the chalkboard but then you know you flip the chalkboard over and on to the next one um what they do is they use math and these equations to attempt to explain these theories that they hypothesize so for example Oppenheimer theorized black holes. Yeah, based on the knowledge that they had at the time of the behavior of various uh, celestial bodies, stars, planets, whatnot, uh, seeing abnormalities in certain points of space. like It's basically how uh, scientists today are able to predict where planets are. Like the, They're too far away to actually observe but by observing stars and you know objects around them over an extended period of time they're able to say okay we can't see it but based on what we know there is something there and where a 
black hole is devoid of uh, everything, including light, because it sucks everything in. You can't physically uh, observe it. And Stephen Hawking was able to later uh, build mm -hmm. upon this knowledge to prove the existence of black holes by showing the uh, massive amount of X-rays and gamma rays and uh, various other types of radiation that proved uh, Oppenheimer and Einstein's theories. You know, you might have seen, uh, and we, we've heard about this in uh, another theoretical thing, we hear about this a lot in the Marvel films, especially when it comes to Thor, when he uses the Bifrost, that is an example of an Einstein-Rosen bridge, which is a theoretical uh, object, also more commonly known as a wormhole, mm -hmm. um, which is used in all kinds of, uh, you know, generally space-related uh, sci-fi movies. Um, you know, it's always like, imagine two points, and they take a piece of paper, and they punch the hole in the, t in the piece of paper. It's like, that's what a wormhole does. Um, so that's like the theoretical, and one of the first things they talk about is another word that we hear a lot about, especially over the last few uh, Ant-Man and Marvel films, quantum, quantum mechanics, quantum physics. Uh, this was really starting to pick up uh, and gain some traction and momentum in the early, what, 20s, 30s? Yeah, so this was kind of like the... Um... The beginnings, really, of the uh, what we know today as theoretical physics. And this is the start of the Oppenheimer cinematic universe. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I can't wait to see what happens in Oppenheimer two. I did. I did Electric see Boogaloo. Somebody, uh, somebody. People don't pay attention to history or anything, and people are like, "Oh, is this based on a real story?" Like, you know, like the people who thought the Titanic was a movie and not a real event. But people are like, oh, is there a post-credit scene to Oppenheimer? It's like, yeah, look outside. Like, you're <laughs> living it. Like, what did you post-credit scene? What did you, did you expect, like, fucking Green Goblin to show up? Like, Willem Dafoe was like, meh, I'm going to get my hands on this technology. Meh. Like, what what were you expecting? Well, you know, I, I also, uh, I, I blame our educational system for that, too. It wasn't until, for me, studying science in college where I really learned about Oppenheimer and, you know, his, because he did more than just the atomic bomb, you know, uh, but I, I, I digress. This, this could be a rabbit. This, this could be a wormhole that we go down that we just don't get out of. Um, but yeah, I, some people learn about him in science. Some people learn about him in history courses. Some learn about him in both. And apparently some just don't pay attention. Um, but anyways, uh, getting back to the portrayal in the film. So they don't focus too, too much about his early years. They kind of gloss over that. And they gloss over a lot of his education, too. So kind of filling in those blanks a little bit. You know, he was born in New York City on April 22nd, 1904, to Jewish immigrants from Germany. His mother was a painter, and his father was a successful textile importer. The family was rather well off. Their art collection included works by Pablo Picasso and at least three original paintings by Vincent van Gogh. 
He also, so they were poor. Yeah. So he, and he also had a younger brother named Frank, who also became a physicist. Became became a physicist. Now I become physicist. <laughs> uh, he was a very versatile student, interested in English and French literature, and particularly in mineralogy. He completely. <laughs> So this is crazy. This shows you how smart he was. He completed third and fourth grades in one year and skipped half of the eighth grade. During his final year is when Oppenheimer became interested in chemistry. He graduated in 1921, but his further education was delayed a year by an attack of colitis contracted during a family vacation in Czechoslovakia. He recovered in New Mexico, where he developed a love for horseback riding and the southwestern United States. That comes into play later. Oh, yes. In a big way. So, like I said, they kind of glossed over his education a little bit. Um, when he was 18, he entered Harvard College, where he majored in chemistry. Harvard also required studies in history, literature, and philosophy or mathematics. He compensated for his late start by taking six courses each term instead of the usual four. He was admitted to the Undergraduate Honor Society, Phi Beta Kappa, and was granted graduate standing in physics on the basis of independent study, which meant he could bypass basic courses in favor of advanced ones. He was attracted to the experimental physics by a course on thermodynamics thermodynamics taught by Percy Bridgman in 1925 after only three years Oppenheimer graduated from Harvard with a Bachelor of Arts summa cum laude yeah and what's weird is as we see in uh, the film as well as the uh, the biopic documentary I don't know it wasn't really a biopic it was a, more of a documentary that featured him um Despite the fact that he excelled in so many areas, especially theoretical uh, physics, he was terrible in the lab. Well, and so, yeah, getting to that. So after being accepted to the University of Cambridge as a member of Christ College in 1924... Oppenheimer wrote a letter requesting permission to work at the Cavendish Laboratory, despite the fact that Bridgman's letter of recommendation said Oppenheimer's clumsiness in the lab suggested that theoretical rather than experimental physics would be his forte. He was ultimately accepted on the condition that he complete a basic lab course. Yeah, and he was so bad at it. Um that his teacher made him stay after class and almost missed Niels Bohr's lecture, to which he responded, as any rational human would, by using cyanide to poison his apple. Yeah, so he was very unhappy at Cambridge and wrote to a friend, quote, I am having a pretty bad time. The lab work is a terrible bore, and I am so bad at it that it is impossible to feel that I'm learning anything. He develops an antagonistic relationship with his tutor, Patrick Blackett, a future Nobel laureate. According to Oppenheimer's friend Francis Ferguson, Oppenheimer once confessed to leaving an apple doused with poison on Blackett's desk. No one ate it. 
Oppenheimer's parents convinced the university authorities not to press criminal charges or expel him. Instead, Oppenheimer was placed on probation and had to have regular sessions with a psychiatrist in London. In the film, it is depicted much differently to the point where Niels Bohr almost eats it. Now, the first thing I thought of was the uh, parallel to Alan Turing, who committed suicide that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, He ate an apple laced with cyanide, uh, which uh, became a huge pop culture icon. And if you have any Apple products, that's where the logo comes from. Yep. He was able to take a single bite that killed him after he was chemically castrated for being gay. I'm sure we've talked about that on this show before, but it bears repeating that that's where your logo came from. Awesome job, Steve Jobs. Uh, If you are interested in another great kind of not necessarily biopic but a film inspired by actual events the imitation game starring benedict cumberbatch as and kira knightley ellen turing Turing, yes and in the same vein obviously the theory of everything with uh eddie redmayne as stephen hawking and felicity felicia Oh, my um, goodness. Why am I... Rogue One. Yeah. Yes. From Rogue One. Uh, Felicia... Skywalker? Sh- sure. Sure. Felicity Skywalker. Um, yeah, that movie was fantastic, too. Eddie Romain did Jones. Felicity Jones. Yes. Felicity yes. Jones. I just looked it up. Uh, uh but yeah, he did a fantastic job of, of portraying Hawking. Especially where it's all in this uh, type of vein, like this, these type of characters that you know, were all instrumental in, or at least in Turing's case, uh, ending World War II. Um, you know, Turing with the German side, Oppenheimer with the Japanese side. Um, you know, it's 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 a good triple feature if you wanted to do that yeah get your uh get your theoretical physicists and cross them off your theoretical physicist <laughs> bingo card <laughs> i mean that's who I mean, doesn't what, have one of those what else would think, you be doing no that? i don't think turing was a theoretical physicist no he wasn't but, a theoretical physicist but he was, but he well, was I mean, a he mathematician was, yeah i was gonna say he was fantastic with numbers um yeah films like this i i so uh, sidestep with me for a moment i love films about scientists i love being able to see these characters these actual people come to life on the screen in front of you and kind of give you a little bit more of their story things that you may not you can read about them, but seeing somebody actually portray them in front of you, it, it's a different feeling. Um, this film in particular, Oppenheimer, uh, I love the idea of theoretical physics. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, no one's laughing but me. <laughs> I love the idea. Of Welcome theoretical... to my world. <laughs> I love the idea of theoretical physics, but um, I like the... Uh, Theorization, uh, hypothesizing. I hate the math. I absolutely hate the math. Yeah, I'm terrible uh, at that math. Physics was the 
bane of my existence. Oh, uh, that, now? Yeah. <laughs> um, that and organic chemistry, but that's not what this film was about. Uh, yeah, physics, it's just, it was just way, I, I don't see numbers that way. I wish I did. I just, I just don't. So I'm very impressed when I learn about people who can do that, who can, you know, have these, these thoughts, these hypothesis, these, you know, theories that they then take to the chalkboard to, you know, and, and use all of these formulas and equations. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, be able to like, you know, I mean, like I'm a, I'm a biologist at heart, you know, I love physically experimenting, you know, creating these if-then statements and then attempting to prove that if-then statement. Um, you know, whereas physics, it's a whole different ball game. You know, yeah, it's not um, because there's so much math involved. Like, it's hard to. It's not like. I mean, everything has math involved in it, but like with theoretical phys physics, it's literally everything is math. Well, yeah, like, it, it is, is a all. You know, I mean, my my job as a mad scientist, I use math every day. But the math that I use is, you know, for some people it might be complex. For me, it's simple enough because I do it every day. Um, you know, these basic algebra equations and and what have you. Um, but yeah, so it's just and and it's really interesting, kind of seeing the way that they portray it on film, because you're not only seeing him write these really lengthy just in-depth equations but you see him kind of plagued especially at night by the fact that he sees everything around him he feels it he is plagued by physics it haunts him yeah like he, he sees it in his sleep it's like the people like you know when you knew um like i used to work at ups and i would see boxes in my sleep because it just like it haunts you because in his case he just couldn't turn his brain off like he barely slept like that was brought up in the the doc and the movie where he would only sleep a few hours a night because his brain was just going 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 and it's almost like it's like his brain had the zoomies yeah it, it's like you have it, it, to yeah. get this out you you nothing you can do with short of expelling all of this energy which he was trying to do by you know coming up with these various uh these various theories and formulas and you know we see in the film like he even says like oh there's no way to split the atom it's impossible like it's like you're a theoretical physicist like why are you and then like the next day they're like oh hooray we you know and if you know your history some of the things uh are spoilers in the movie and there's one part where I'm I looked at I looked at Ash and I was like, you kind of goes back to my uh, front page news thing like, hey, we were able to split the atom or they they did they did something. They like came up with this amazing scientific discovery, but it was on September 1st, 1939, which is when Germany invaded Poland. Mm -hmm. So that was cool. 
not quite front page news. No, that that was that was on the second page. <laughs> that was on page two, so it's still important. But uh, yeah, didn't didn't quite make the front page. So yeah, I uh, yeah. Um, so getting back into his educational history, in 1926, Oppenheimer left Cambridge for the University of. I'm going to hack up this word. It's in Germany. University of, of Göttingen. Göttingen? G-O-T-T-I-N. Göttingen. Probably. Probably Göttingen. Sure. To study under Max Born. The university was one of the world's leading centers for theoretical physics. Oppenheimer made friends uh, Oppenheimer made friends who went on to great success, including Werner Heisenberg, who was not played by Brian Cranston, and Edward Teller. He was enthusiastic in discussion to the point of sometimes taking them over. Classmates presented Born with a petition threatening to boycott the class unless he made Oppenheimer quiet down. Born left it out on his desk where Oppenheimer could read it, and it was effective without a word being said. Mm. He had some bullshit. Yeah, and he obtained his Doctor of Philosophy degree in March of 1927. After the oral exam, James Frank, the professor administering the exam, reportedly said, I'm glad that's over. He was on the point of questioning me. Yeah, it was. uh, So he was 23, uh, almost. You said March? Yeah. So, yeah, he was 23 when he graduated with his when he received his doctorate. No, he was 22. He was because he is April 22nd. So he's a few weeks shy of his 23rd birthday and he got his doctorate to give you an idea of that's usually what, eight years of school? Um, depending on what. So you're yeah, four I mean, years, four years like of undergrad. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're looking at four years of undergrad. Two years of a master's program and anywhere from two to four years of a doctorate program, depending on what exactly you're going for. And so he did it in like a few years, because mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't say when he when he uh, hopped he up and out of uh, high school and into college. Um, but he was obviously younger. You even said he got a later start to going to college. Yeah, he started a year after his. he should have because of, of the, the illness that he had. So, so then he got his doctorate in three years. Yeah. <laughs> like, so he started college at 19 and just shy of his uh, 23rd birthday got his Ph.D. Like, well, I mean, I mean, it was way easier back then. There was still so much stuff that they didn't know. So you could just like make anything up and be like, I'm a theoretical physicist. I think that there's black holes. Prove it. I can't prove it. It's just a theory, you know, (laughs) you know, but obviously he knew what he was doing and what he was talking about, which is why he was able to achieve such a lofty position in such a short time, like that's insanity like I still can't get over the fact that he did that in just a few years 
Like, Stephen Hawking had to struggle and, like, battle for his, but, you know, they're just handing them out to Oppenheimer. Well, it was a different time. Yeah, it was a difference of maybe 20 years. But, any, no, it was longer than that. Well, and also, Hawking sort of kind of had the illness that he was battling as well. Yeah, Lou Gehrig's so. disease. You know, if he had gotten, if he had been born a little earlier and got it first, it might be called Stephen Hawking disease. Just Lou Gehrig was more famous and got it first. ALS is Lou Gehrig's disease, but he was the most prominent person with it. Mm-hmm. So, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to kind of bring it to where the film, like the meat of the film is, which is the Manhattan Project. And which everyone knew about, but was such a huge secret. Yeah, well, it, yeah. So, well, that's because a lot... All the physicists and... Right, they knew about right. It. Like, well, because, you know, they signed these contracts you know it's supposed to supposed to keep everything it's basically hush. an nda yeah they're supposed to keep everything hush hush but at the same time it's like well i'm having issues with this let me you know let me confer with my former colleague you know from berkeley or whatever you know to to figure this out yeah because most of these guys you know while they may have gone off to different you know positions you know like, you know, during the war, Heisenberg was leading the German uh, uh, research into creating the atomic bomb, like their version of Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project. But like Oppenheimer knew him, like because they had all studied, like all these people that were involved all studied together or worked together mm-hmm. or, you know, you know, uh, attended lectures together so they all kind of knew each other it's kind of like you know uh guys that get drafted into different sports leagues you know if you know baseball or 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 basketball you know they're all playing in the same developmental league and you know when they're really good like they're all playing in the higher like more elite developmental leagues and like they all end up playing together and then they end up on different teams but like they all still know each other. It's the same kind of thing. Only, if there was like a a draft for physicists and scientists, if you're not counting Operation Paperclip, but uh, it's it's a very similar thing where everybody knows everybody else because they've all gotten they like they all learned from the same teacher. You know, they all attended the same lectures. You know, everybody knew who Niels Bohr was, and like there was a race to find. Niels Bohr and like everybody wanted the Russians wanted him, the Germans wanted him, the Americans wanted him. Everybody wanted him, but like when the Americans got him, he was like, "Oh, thank you for getting me out of there and being forced to work on this." Like, "Well, you'll be a great addition to the team." I totally would, but I don't want to be a part of this. Like Niels Bohr was like, "You don't need me. You have Oppenheimer. I'm good. I'm I'm out." Um which is an interesting stance. Well, so that's kind of, you know, uh, the movie does a really good job of of explaining exactly what happened at Los Alamos, why that location was chosen, and we mentioned before that Oppenheimer had a thing for that area. 
So why wouldn't he, you know, not only was it kind of out in the middle of nowhere, you have all of this land surrounding you, just this empty land surrounding you, which is perfect for, I don't know, dropping bombs. Except it wasn't empty land. That is correct. Um, but it, uh, just lost my train of thought. Um, no, so it does a really good job of, of going into that and, you know, uh, the role that Oppenheimer played in the Manhattan Project, you know, the scientist who worked with him, underneath him. Uh, my only issue with all of this is, you know, they cram years worth of work into a, a, a so much was just kind of glossed over because how do you how do you go into everything? And when, when you're also telling multiple stories at once. Right. They're, what they're doing in this, if you haven't seen the film, it's the three, basically three eras of uh, Oppenheimer's life. Um, but three of the stories are being told concurrently where it's, and they're all, they all use different colors because of the situation. Like uh, Louis Strauss's, uh, Senate confirmation hearing is all in black and white. Uh, and that's Robert Downey Jr.'s character. Then there's the deposition to remove Oppenheimer's uh, security clearance based on his opposition to, you know, furthering the arms race and uh, creating a hydrogen bomb. Well, and, and being affiliated... Not not a member, but affiliated in a sense with the Communist Party. Well, that's that's the excuse they used because they didn't want to have such an influential voice uh, in the atomic program in the in the world of you know nuclear physics. They didn't want to have him be like, "Oh, we shouldn't do this." So they're like, "Oh, uh, that's because he's a communist." Yeah, like they used mm -hmm. because that was right in the middle of the McCarthy era. Yeah. So like they were never going to arrest him and and like throw him in prison. But they didn't want him in a position where he could uh they didn't want influence. him I was going to say they don't they didn't want him being as influential as he was. So what they do is they cover you know, this is an arms race at this point. Uh, everyone's trying to create the bomb. It's just a matter of who will create it first. Um, you hear in the trailer, they say that the Germans have, what, at least 12... An 18-month head start. Yeah, an 18-month head start. They, they think it's 12, and Oppenheimer's like, no, 18. It's like, how do you know that? It's because like, I know the guy's working on it. Like, Yeah, exactly. I know how good they are. Uh, so it's not so much, you know... What's going on in some of these scientists' head at the time isn't so much should we be doing this, and that's where you know some people did have a a moral conflict with what they were doing, and some people did drop off, and some people didn't want to be a part of it at all. You know, thanks but no thanks because I can't be responsible for what happens. However, the driving force for many of these scientists working on this project was. We have to do this before the Nazis. Right. It was a double-edged sword. It's like, we don't want to introduce this technology as a weapon, because they did talk about it as a power source. 
But it's like, we don't want to introduce this as a weapon because, A, and I knew about this when we when we watched the film and I kind of like whispered over to you uh, before they said it. They were concerned that if they started this chain reaction, it would never stop and it would destroy all of the oxygen in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So there was... The slight concern, it was a near zero chance, but there was the slight concern that uh, splitting the atom in this way would pretty much ignite the world. Yeah, exactly. Oppenheimer knew that one way or the other, this would kind of end life as we know it, because now you're going to have, everyone's going to have the bomb. Everyone's going to have it. Um, And the... The thing is, it's like, well, we don't want to give anybody this weapon, but if somebody's got to have it, it should be us because we're not the Nazis. Like, that's not a great rationale. But it was what they told themselves. It's what got them through. It was the driving force behind the urgency of why this needed to be done. Do you know how many Um, nuclear tests the United States conducted? I don't. Uh, 313. Wow. Set up. That's just us setting off 313 bombs. Like, when they set off the bomb, uh, the Castle Bravo bomb, which, uh, according to uh, the one documentary I saw, was uh, to kill Godzilla, that... <laughs> um, it ended up, like, irradiating, like, a ton of land all around where it was set off. The Bikini Atoll, 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 I've... I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but they they just absolutely devastated that area, and they're like, "Well, you can never do this again." You know, I think it was like the United Nations that I'm like, "You can never do this again," and you have to pay a fine. I think it was like fifteen million dollars, and they're like, "Oh man, let's do this again just to see what happens." It's like, what was the deterrent? Like, what are they gonna do? Like, well, you better not do that again, or what? Well, uh, like, yeah, we're going to do it. We'll pay the fine, whatever. So the bomb, and obviously a bomb does go off in the film. Uh, It's the um, first bomb, first atomic bomb ever dropped. It's the big test that they did, uh, codenamed Trinity. Uh, You see that in the film. And to be completely honest with you, if you have any inkling of wanting to see this film at all see it in the theater for that one moment in particular because oh my goodness they did it right they got it so correct it was so correct perfect and the fabulous part no cgi was used at all in this film everything is all practical effects and like digital manipulation yeah i mean obviously there's like, gonna be like like, the, like in the editing part process and stuff like that like layering certain things but no actual like cgi was used right the only cgi that was used was the film uh when it uh aired or, or aired but when it was screened overseas in certain countries uh a black dress was digitally added to florence Pugh to cover up uh, uh, her nudity. So, other than that, um... yeah. So here in the U.S., no CGI. 
Um, one of the things I did like that the film really uh, focused on was Oppenheimer's feelings immediately after that first bomb went off, just that test alone. He knew he had something and almost immediately felt regret because he knew exactly what those bombs were going to be used for. Well, he his thing was he knew that by killing thousands, he would save millions. It's that stupid railroad track it, 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 well, Yeah, thing. yeah, but it still haunted him. Oh, it yeah. It's something that, I mean, Homeboy was fucked up for the rest in of the his ep- life. In the, the interview with Walter Cronkite, he was talking about how it... Um, it he was so distraught. He's like, you know, basically, I'm responsible for the deaths of 200,000 people. Like, you know, obviously the other scientists contributed and like it wasn't just him, obviously. Right, but he was running that sector of the project. His name was on it. He is known as the father of the atomic bomb. Uh, so he goes through this period of intense depression quickly followed by this period of uh, because everyone viewed him as a rock star yeah he was a rock star scientist at the time yes exactly and that's something to be said about this time period too uh and and before then there was a time in a you know a, a, a large period of history but still a period of history where scientists were regarded as rock stars you know, everybody, As they should have been. Everybody loved them. Everybody wanted to read their works, whether they understood it or not. Uh, they were conversation points. People wanted to attend lectures by them, conferences, what have you. You know, they were heralded as superheroes, larger than life. You know, now scientists have to defend their works to stupid people on the internet you know like it's just it's it's people who think well i did my own research you know via wikipedia and all of this other stuff and therefore my uh my 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 five minute research you know has has more bearing than your phd my uncle Um, who's like a real whiz with computers yeah (laughs) said that there's microchips in the vaccine even though microchips couldn't fit through a needle and that's why i don't shower yeah. Uh, so you kind of see him. It, it's almost like a. I don't want to see bipolar because that's it's like not, a fugue state. But, you know, he's he's trying to embrace everything because what else is he supposed to do? Become a recluse? Like, you know, and everyone was applauding him. Everyone was, you know, uh, he he saved the u.s he basically tried to take the notoriety that he achieved through this horrific advent of technology and tried to use his uh his stature and his influence to kind of um steer things in a way that would be it would be the most helpful thing that he could do because the genie was already out of the bottle. There was nothing that they could do to put it back in. Everybody was racing to create a bigger and more destructive bomb. So, I mean, 
I don't know if it was him who came came up with the idea, but the concept of a mutually assured destruction, basically saying, you use a nuke on us, we're going to unload our entire arsenal on you. So everybody is dead. Like, you're going to hit us? All right, we're going to hit you. And basically it was just the arms race during the Cold War between the U.S. and Russia, or the Soviet Union, uh, because they have, you know, between the two of us, more than enough to just annihilate the world many, many times over. Well, because shortly after that, they developed the H-bomb. Yes, uh, and they were trying to... One of the things Oppenheimer was trying to avoid was this nuclear proliferation because, I mean, in the end, that ended up being the thing that kind of stopped everybody from using them is everybody had them, and, you know, there's no point in using it. Like, every now and then, somebody would set one off and be like, hey, hey, look what we just made. Yeah, kind of like a, a... I don't want to say empty threat, but... No, it's a dick-measuring contest, you know? And then the neutron bomb came out, mm-hmm. you know? So in the neutron bomb, essentially, it's not as powerful, but what the neutron bomb does is leaves the infrastructure intact but kills all the organic life. So it's like... Awesome. Like, I read a, sci- a science fiction story years ago about, you know, a very similar thing. The U.S. and the Russia got into an arms race, and, you know, we had our weapon, and they had their weapon, and we destroyed each other. But because they used, like, neutron bomb-type weapons, the only thing we could do, they destroyed all of our infrastructure, all our stuff. Basically, all the survivors migrated and became Russians. So the United States was completely uninhabited, but Russia lived on. Because mm-hmm. we had to use all their their money, all their, you know, tools, their equipment, their technology, like their homes, everything, all their literature, all that stuff, uh, because we were so excited to use our big new destructive bomb against them. So that's kind of what Oppenheimer was trying to protect against by it's like you don't need the H-bomb like the atomic bomb is already powerful enough it's like where the atomic bomb could level a city a hydrogen bomb could level you know the biggest cities you know they're exponentially more powerful than atomic bombs but at what point is too much enough it's like well you know I could kill you with this grenade, but instead I'm going to strap you to a rocket and shoot you into the sun. Like, you're dead either way. What does it matter at that point? Like, what is the point of this bigger, more destructive, but, like, that's just the nature of man. Like, Mm -hmm. we're not happy unless we're killing everybody. Right, but, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki... The only two times a nuclear weapon has been used in war. Yes, despite the 
despite threats. Many, 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 like the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, that was, you know, very, we came very close to that. There was also uh, a time where there was some malfunction uh, in some Russian equipment that showed that a bomb was coming from us to them. But the guy was like, I don't think this is right. I think my equipment is malfunctioning because he was the last guy in charge and he erred on the side of caution. It's like, if I'm wrong, I'm ending fucking humanity. If I'm right, we're all set. And he refused to call it in and be like, yeah, uh, we're under attack. And because of that, everyone's still here. Because it turned out that it was an accident. It's like, oops, uh, what we saw was actually something else, and it was a glitch in our system. You know, the U.S. did not actually fire a fucking nuke at Moscow. So because that guy kept his head and kept cool under pressure, we didn't have the mutually assured destruction. Because if the if the Russians had suddenly been like, oh shit, they shot at us, well, we better unleash everything, we would have... Uh, I'm sure we would have acted rationally and uh, composed and... Oh, of course, of course. Then like, oh, you know what, we understand totally. Uh, we're definitely not just going to absolutely annihilate everything. So we've gone on almost an hour about this topic. What I do want to talk about before we wrap this up is uh, Killian Murphy's portrayal of Robert Oppenheimer. Um, I thought he did a phenomenal job. We have a little bit of uh, differing opinions about this. We've had conversations. Well, no, no. I, it's not that I think he did a poor job. I just, you know, I don't think he's worthy of an Oscar nomination simply because... Oppenheimer was not, like we said, not a dynamic personality. So there wasn't like a lot of quirks and and things to sort of, you know, capture. He, it was just basically the look and the voice, which he did an excellent job. He did very well. Don't get me wrong. But it's not like, you know, he was portraying someone who had like this huge dual personality where you know it's like oh i'm you know out and excited and around you know he pretty much stayed even keel and showed like no emotion throughout the entire film which i think is more difficult than being a dynamic character no you know oppenheimer wasn't charismatic he didn't have any of that but what killian murphy brought to the table um, were the subtleties that Oppenheimer had, you know, uh, the way that he reacted to certain situations and uh, not, he was a, he was a depressed person. You know, he had these bouts of depression that just completely consumed him and science was what brought him to life. And then he used this thing that, you know, was his life force to create something that was so devastating and he had to live with that. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, yeah. he 
you know, somebody who was troubled from the beginning, you know, he was even before all of this atomic stuff, you know, he was plagued by how smart he was and the visions that he had and his quest for for knowledge, wanting to solve these these, you know, theories, you know, prove these theories that he had and, you know, kind of like solve all of the questions of the of the earth, of the world, you know? Um so for for yeah, I think he just I just think he did a really phenomenal job of bringing that to life and 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 you know this 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 person who had so much going on. I think a lot of that also came down to the film editing because it seems like he's keeping his cool when like there's all this shit going around and like they really they make it seem like the world is closing in on him and like there's all this outside and like super bright lights and like you know reverberations and it's almost like a a hallucination of like his guilt and his uh his 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 internal struggle and trauma being manifested as special effects. So it's like, you know, you see him, you know, reacting to what's going on around him, but like those things really aren't there. Like the lights and the reverberations and the sounds and everything, that's not happening around him. So, you know, Nolan's probably just telling him like, you know, react and like look like this and kind of act like that because this is what's going to be going on around you. But, like, he's not physically dealing with any of those things. Um, I don't know. I, I just... To me, a performance where you really show no emotional range whatsoever is not that impressive. I get that that's capturing that character... Because he never really got angry. He never really got heated. Especially not in the latter half of the film. Like, you saw him with a little bit of passion dealing with his family. Um, but, like, not... I don't know. I just... I think he did a good job of portraying the character. Uh, not even the character. Like embodying who Robert Oppenheimer was. I just don't think it was as dynamic a performance as other other things that I've seen. But that to me. Well, I mean, and you're correct. It's it's not a dynamic performance because he wasn't a, dy a dynamic person. I think he did a fantastic job of capturing who this person was and, you know, his... It not uh, not descent into madness, but like his uh, the dealing, the emotions the emotions that came gotta... with you know uh, dealing with with what he did, the outcome of that, and then the residuals. Well, it's like of I was that. saying, like the, his internal struggle and manifest you know manifesting itself as special effects, you know, because he's got. 
Well, I mean, he did say, you know, now I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Like He said that way before. I didn't like the fact that they used it as like, oh, I'm about to nail Florence Pugh and like, this is what I'm saying. No, he said that in regards to the atomic Right, I'm just talking about bomb. the difference right. yeah, between they, the Yeah, they movie. kind of put that in there and I'm like, that's stupid. It's, it's, like, it that, was almost like, that's his catchphrase and it's like, it's almost like uh, like in Alien versus Predator Requiem where they had to have a guy say, get to the chopper, you know? Like, they had to shoehorn that in there. But, like, they didn't. They could have put it in somewhere else because in the, the To End All War Robert Oppenheimer thing that we watched on uh, Fubo, that, you know, he talked about that quote and when he said it, like, and it was the actual... He wasn't like, well, I was nailing my mistress, and she wanted me to read some some Sanskrit, so I read Sanskrit to her, and that just happened to be, you know, she just flipped it open to a random page, and that's what it was, and, you know, it's like, no, like, that's, that I didn't like. Like, show it when it meant something to him, you know, or put it somewhere else um, to make it make sense. You know, don't just put it in there and be like, you know what it is? That's fan service. Mm. That's what yeah. that is. You know, that's like anytime someone, you know, in a Spider-Man movie is like, with great power comes great responsibility. And then uh, Brandon will be like, actually, it's uh, with great power must come great responsibility because that's actually the correct quote. But again, I digress. Um, it's, it's That's literally what that is because that's what... Oppenheimer is known for uh, that and uh, we were talking about an, an, an Easter egg in uh, not in this film but because uh, you were like like oh I you know because we were talking about I, I said Killian Murphy looks just like him and you were like oh, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of him and I said yes you have he is the picture on the side of Dennis Nedry's computer in Jurassic Park uh, and underneath it says the beginning of baby boom because that's literally what happened mm-hmm. after the war was over. Everybody came home and all the soldiers got free houses, uh, unless they were black. But that's a story for another day. Um, but yes, uh, that was the beginning of baby boom because everybody came home. War was over. We weren't going to get into another war ever. And we never did. And peace and prosperity reigned across the entire planet. And uh, all war was ended. And uh, we don't have war anymore because... The threat of nuclear annihilation uh, has sufficiently scared everyone into uh, peace and uh, behaving. Everything is is wonderful, and we have uh, we have no more war. Everyone has enough food, and uh, everything is 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 wonderful. I may be remembering that slightly wrong, but uh, yeah, that was the beginning of baby boom. Just just saying. You got anything else you want to add? Well, I think this is a fantastic place to uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got a new battle. We've got some other fun stuff to talk about. I'm going to get so, the battle theme uh, ready. Yeah, yeah. Do it now. Do it now. Come on. You didn't think we were going to get another Arnold reference in there, but we did. So we'll be right back. We'll be right back. I'll be back. That's what he says. 
And we're back. That was uh, Destroyer of Worlds by Ludwig Gorenson, uh, who did the score for uh, Oppenheimer. You might also recognize some of his music if you watched uh, The Mandalorian, because he also did uh, that score. Um, yeah, I, I really like the music. He did a good job, uh, Ludwig. Uh, I think he's kind of morphing into like a James Newton Howard or a John Williams or... Or uh, somebody uh, uh, along Howard Shore, along those lines, somebody who's really uh, getting the opportunity to score like the bigger, more, I guess for lack of a better term, more cinematic, uh, you know, projects. Because it's not just, I mean, it's not just uh, movies, because a lot of the TV shows nowadays are done in a very cinematic way, uh, telling stories and whatnot. Uh, and the, the grand scale of the the sets and uh, the locations where they're shooting, but we hope you enjoyed that uh, discussion about uh, Doctor J. And uh, as promised, we have a new battle for you. And uh, what happens when we have a new battle? Well, we have to play the battle theme. It's not Well, one of these times it'll work, and uh, one of these times I'll get it. Jesus, uh, I, I don't know why that never works. I don't, I don't get it. But I'll add it. I'll add it in post. We'll get it in post. Yeah, but they're not gonna know that it's in post. Well, you know, I because they're gonna me, listen to it, and it's gonna be like, oh, that's the battle theme. I have no idea what they're talking about. But I freely admit to, you know, when when I make a mistake on the show, like you know. Um, but what is our, our, our battle this week? Because you, you definitely came up with a good name for it. So this week we are throwing down, this ain't a scene, it's a goddamn arms race. Yeah, so basically what we wanted to do this week is we each had uh, a, a, an idea that revolved around Oppenheimer, but we decided to go with um, which of these inventions was or has been more detrimental to humanity through its use. So you can choose either atomic weapons, nuclear weapons, whether they be fission or fusion, uh, through Robert Oppenheimer's uh, guidance direction and research the AK-47 developed by Mikhail Kalashnikov or Eugene Stoner's Armalite AR-15 so those are your options it's a little bit of a morbid battle this week um, because all of these things are real world it's morbid time yes oh that's a oh that's a good that's a good name for the episode. I was thinking, won't you nuke your neighbor? But like, this is uh, this that's that's way better. It's morbid time. All right, uh, 
what do we have coming up? Do we uh, do well, we want to well, tell anybody or? Well, I have I have wine. Oh yeah, okay. I have wine well, coming let's, up. Let's talk about wine coming up. Yeah, well, actually, it's not wine, but it is deliciousness. So, um, I like wine. But I also really enjoy ciders. And there's something about ciders during summer, just like going into the fridge, pulling out a nice ice cold cider that's just, it's just so satisfying. Our favorite cidery, Down East, recently released kind of a a, a white whale uh, cider. Especially for me. Uh, Because they released it in the, I believe, the taproom. Last year, we didn't have a chance to. to it's kind of like the the cider donut thing for us. Uh, we heard about the cider donut one year. We couldn't find it. We searched for it. We searched high. We searched low. I went to so many fucking stores trying to find uh, this cider donut cider. Um, couldn't find it. That next year, it was everywhere. This one, uh, I believe, it was in tap rooms last year. And they actually released it this year. We found it in stores, and it was just like, we have to try this, guys. I bought two packages. The flavor is orange creamsicle. A fucking creamsicle cider. And yes, it is a cider. It is a a made with apples. uh, Still has a little bit of that, like, apple-y taste to it. But they somehow managed to cram the taste and i mean like you know you get that nice orange sherbet taste and you get that really like the the creamy vanilla fi- you know vanilla e vanilla e vanilla e uh flavor as well under oh it is so good so good it's very difficult to not because they come in the four packs it's very difficult to not just be like oh, i'm just gonna drink the whole four pack Uh, Because it is so good. So if you are interested in trying it, I honestly cannot recommend it enough because it is so good. good. There's something about the the balance of the flavors. Like I said, you get that apple, but it's mostly that nice orange sherbet flavor with that creamy vanilla undertones. Like it's just, it all plays so well together. And, oh, it's just, you know, it's been really, it's been really fun fucking hot out especially the past month yeah several <laughs> weeks. um so having these in the fridge just kind of pulling one out and sipping on one it's just been uh just been really satisfying so i if you are interested in trying it i highly suggest you can search for it you google it or whatever um find out which stores near you have it i strongly suggest suggest uh searching it out high recommendation uh, yeah it is delicious yeah uh i'm a big fan of this this was something that i was looking for last year uh, this type of flavor is something I really like. Uh, it's up there with like s'mores or cookies and cream or cookie dough for me. Um, and I was not disappointed. I will actually be uh, grabbing a four pack and taking it with me this weekend when I go to uh, learn how to get my movie color corrected uh, because there was a rough cut of my film out. I'm very excited to share it with you all soon. Uh, not too soon, but soon enough i know i know what you're thinking that's not soon enough but we will have it soon when will then be now soon so uh do we have anything else before we uh want to head on out because it's almost midnight and we haven't eaten dinner yet 
Oh, we should probably get on that. Yes. So I think with that being said, we, we will see you next Thursday. Thursday.